In the 1990s, a frantic mother drove her teenage son 70 miles from southeast Michigan to a church where she had heard that a man named Irving Houle would be praying that night. The trip, more than an earnest pursuit, was a sign of her utter desperation. She had long stopped practicing her faith and her belief in God was agnostic at best. But her son had a cancerous tumor in his neck and it was growing. She didn't consider herself in any position to doubt any possible healing for her son, and the stories of this humble man from the Upper Peninsula, his holiness and his miraculous healings, had spread widely across Michigan from his hometown of Escanaba. And so, like the hundreds and hundreds who had flocked to him with meager hopes, she came to see him. Houle prayed over them with his bandaged hands, and then they headed home. On the way home that night, they experienced peace and healing. They experienced the smell of roses in their car and on their hands, both she and her son. And the son felt his neck, which he had been feeling for weeks now because he had started some uh, medical treatment for it, and he could not feel the tumor. This is Deacon Terry Saunders, a dear friend and biographer of Irving's, as well as the president of the Irving Francis Houle Society, an association for the cause of sainthood of Irving Houle. So he had an appointment within the next couple of days for, with his doctor, but they didn't tell the doctor that they had this religious experience. They just let them figure it out for himself, and the doctor was surprised when he couldn't find the tumor there. He said, said he was surprised to think that it could be gone after a couple of treatments of radiation. And he said he, he didn't know how that could happen. He'd never seen it happen before. But it's gone, and the boy is a man now. He's probably 40 years old or better. Her son experienced the physical healing, and she experienced the spiritual conversion. And, and she's a beautiful soul now who who practices the faith and loves Jesus. This isn't an isolated story of healing, but one, Deacon Saunders explains, of hundreds and hundreds of stories, including that of his own physical healing from cancer. These stories are what filled churches with people from all over the U.S., hopeful for an encounter with Irving Houle. And today, these stories are drawing the attention of Rome. In 2018, Bishop John Dorfler of Marquette opened the cause of canonization for Servant of God Irving C. Houle nine years after his death. In June 2019, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops voiced its support for Houle's cause to move forward, explaining, The effects of Irving's ministry clearly increased greatly the faith of the people with whom he came into contact, and devotion to him continues to grow more and more every day throughout the Diocese of Marquette. Irving's life story is not so different from many of our own. It's not the bio many Catholics associate with saints or of the heroic martyrs beaten, burned at the stakes, or crucified. It's not the cerebral prowess and spiritual depth of the doctors of the church who passed down church teachings, philosophies, and spiritual insights for future generations. Houle's story is that of a family man, a beloved father of five, a grandfather, a devoted husband a hard-working plant manager in fourth-degree Knight of Columbus, a simple man with no college education and no formal religious or theological studies. Irving Houle is an everyman, and for so many who are blessed to know him, they say he's just the saint we need.
Welcome to Detroit Stories, a podcast on a mission to boldly share the stories of the people and communities in Southeast Michigan. These are the stories that fascinate and inspire us. Thinking about the probability of dying is something that none of us wants to face. No matter what we do, all of us will pass away one day. Preparing now is a great way to help our loved ones during their grieving process and ensure our final wishes are followed. Our caring friends at the Catholic Funeral and Cemetery Services can help you. Visit cfcsdetroit.org or call 734-285-2155. Irving Francis Houle's early life story sounds like that of many men from the greatest generation. Irving Houle, well, he was a family man who lived in the Spalding Township area, which is about 15 miles west of Escanaba in the Upper Peninsula. He was uh, a local boy and lived on a small farm. When he graduated from high school, he, uh, he went immediately into the Army and he served in World War II and ended up in the Battle of the Bulge uh, towards the end of the war. And when he came home, he got married and raised uh, five children. And and he became he had several jobs in our local area. And eventually, he became a manager for a, a manufacturing firm up here that uh, that really blossomed under under his work. This is Deacon Saunders again, recalling Hull's origins. It's a familiar story. A good old American boy graduates from high school, joins the army, serves his country, gets married, and has children, and goes into manufacturing. But Deacon Saunders says there's more to the story. I think what sets Irving apart is some of the events that happened into his life. He, uh, he related that it, he thinks it all started when he was about six years old. Uh, he had a farming accident. It was late in the afternoon, and the, they had had a horse out in the field working, and a couple of the older brothers of his put him and a couple other younger relatives on the back of this horse right after they brought the horse in from the field. Well, the horse was thirsty, and he took off running and to head to the, uh, the water pond, and uh, Irving got thrown off from the horse, and he landed on a stump or an old railroad tie, but a, on, on a, a hard object and caved in his ribs. He was throwing up violently, and his ribs were caved in on the left side of his body. They drove him to the nearest hospital 17 miles away. He had some x-rays done that showed fractured ribs and punctured lungs. He was struggling to breathe and hemorrhaging badly through his nose and mouth. There had even been a blurb in the newspaper about it. It said, son of Peter and Lillian, who was injured in a farming accident, he is not expected to survive. Well, it just so happened that uh, Irving's uh, mother stayed with him that night and uh, watching him struggle throughout the night. And and uh, he also, Irving had an aunt who was a, a nun. The family contacted the sister and, and, her, and her sisters, and they all prayed for him in Novena that night. And sometime during the night, Irving had a visitor. He had a vision of Jesus. Uh, he didn't say it was Jesus in the morning, but when they found the doctor came to him in the morning and found that he was breathing easily and doing well, uh, it wasn't explained. He took more X-rays, and there was there was no more broken ribs. 
And Irving asked his mother, who was that beautiful man with the long hair and the white bathrobe that came into my room last night? And of course, the mother told him to repeat that to the doctor. And Irving didn't come right out and say it was Jesus, but later on in his life, he personally told me that he knew that it had to have been Jesus, but it was so hard for him to believe as a six-year-old kid to understand. Uh, now, Jesus didn't do anything or say anything to him. He just stood at the end of his bed and held up his right hand in a blessing. And that was kind of a miraculous thing. He was miraculously healed after that visit from Jesus. 36 hours after arriving at the hospital on a stretcher, he walked out. At the time, the local bishop had been notified of this miraculous recovery and agreed that the beautiful man Irving saw must have been Jesus. Irving saw this as one of the foundational events of his life that deepened his relationship with Jesus, but there were others. He credited his parents and the way they raised him and his six siblings in the faith as being deeply influential. And they lived in a small home that couldn't have been any more than 28 feet by uh, by 36 feet with us two bedrooms upstairs. Uh, the six of them and their parents, his parents taught them how to pray. They all went to church every Sunday and in their home they prayed, especially during Easter and Christmas, they pray, prayed the rosary as a family. And the, after mass, his father, Peter, who was a French-Canadian and didn't speak English real well, would bring the kids after, ma after Holy Mass around to the Stations of the Cross. And uh, they would pray the Stations of the Cross, but not the way you and I are familiar with it these days. Dad just had them say an Our Father and a Hail Mary at each station. At this point in his ordinary life, Hull started to develop an extraordinary faith life. After his family moved to Escanaba when he was in high school, he started going to daily Mass. He loved the Eucharist, and it was not uncommon for him to be moved to tears at the consecration. When he was a youth, and they, his family would come into town, he was like a teenager, 12, 13 years old, he'd visit his cousins, and had another family of hools in town, visit their cousins, and they, their, his aunt would often find him sitting in the church praying as a teenager. and. Again, Irving told me this himself. He said, I really didn't know what I was doing in there, but I just sat there and, and stared at the tabernacle where Jesus was, he said. And, but I went there every time I went to town. And then as he grew, he continued to go to Mass regularly. Uh, he wasn't provided a daily Mass when they lived west of town, but in high school, they moved into town of Escanaba and he was able to start going to Mass every day. And it was funny, one day he told me, uh, and he did not say this in a judgmental tone, he just said to me, you know, Terry, when I was a senior in high school, I went to Mass every day, and I couldn't understand why there were no other kids from my school that were there. He said, I couldn't understand why they wouldn't want to be there. And he had a great devotion to the Mass and the Eucharist, and he prayed the uh, Stations of the Cross. After high school graduation, Hull was drafted into the Army where he was a squad leader charged with the care of men in his command. He told me that when they were going through France, 
on the way to Belgium that some of the guys got a little interested in the wine and, and some of the women there. And he encouraged them that to go to confession. And he was so happy when they could find a priest. Well, he, he said some of the guys really didn't want to go and confess their sins. They were so ashamed. Irving was honorably discharged after his service at the end of World War II. He came home and married his wife, Gail. He and Gail were members at St. Joseph and St. Patrick Parish in Escanaba. They prayed the Stations of the Cross every night. He and Gail had five children, one girl and four boys. Well, he was a really great family man. His children loved him and respected him, but he was gentle with them. Uh, in fact, Gail, his wife, said that she did must most of the disciplining because Irv had such a gentle nature, nature about him. But he, uh, he had a great relationship. His boys, they loved him dearly, and he loved them and his daughter, Margot, um, and they still do love him. Uh, he was a, he liked to be with family. Every Sunday was with family. Easter was with family, the whole family, and, and he was just, that's the kind of family man that he was. Over the years, he worked at a slew of companies, Roberts Shoes, Montgomery Ward, Northern Chemical Supply, Harnisch-Fager Corporation, before working for 15 years at EMP as a plant manager. They were by no means passions, but he found joy in his work and managed to bring his faith with him. He uh, started some of these jobs as a young man and went to work in the, in the uh, a factory as a supervisor. Uh, he always kept a picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary on his desk. And he told me that one day someone from the company came in and made a comment about his religion there. And I said, well, what'd you tell him, Irv? And he said, I told him if they go, I go. I don't know if they believed him or not, but the pictures stayed on his desk. Deacon Saunders first met Hull at a critical time. In 1992, Deacon Saunders had a very serious cancer that had metastasized. He was told he had five months to live by the head oncologist at the Mayo Clinic after they diagnosed him with stage four sarcoma. Some women who had been bringing him communion brought Irving with them on one of their visits. They asked me if they could bring a holy man to my house. They knew him as a holy man because every day after work throughout his life, he went to this parish, but every day he would be in St. Joe's or St. Pat's uh, praying the Stations of the Cross in the afternoon or early evening whenever he got off of work. And they knew him from their parish, and, and they brought him to me, and we became fast friends. He often told me how much Jesus loved me, and my wife would be there, and he would tell her, too, that Jesus loved us and and that he loved us, and he was praying for us. And, and uh, we just were really close by that. He was a different person than I'd ever met. Deacon Saunders was still alive after five months. The following month, they opened up his chest and took out some of the lesions in his lungs. What had been thousands of lesions was now just five in each lung. They cut those out of his lungs, and they could find no evidence of any cancer. 31 years later, there is still no sign of cancer. Deacon Saunders has no doubt it was the healing of Hul. There was another miraculous event that happened that spring during Holy Week. So Irving uh, came to my house, I think, on 
uh, on Wednesday before Holy Thursday, 1993, gave me communion, told me I'm going to be with my family all weekend. I'll see you next week sometime. And he came back either on either on uh, Tuesday after Easter or right closely thereafter. And when he came in after that Easter weekend to my house, he looked very haggard. Looked like he was tired and had been working double shifts for four or five days. Came in and stood in front of me uh, where I was on my couch. I was about 30, 40 pounds underweight, and bald and dying. And he, uh, he stood in front of me and I said, what's wrong, Irv? And he said, uh, I don't know what's happening to me. And he held up both of his hands in front of me. They were at eye level as I was seated and he was standing in front of me and I saw I saw these little purple marks in the middle of the palms of his hands and I immediately I can't say I passed out, I just kind of fell over on the couch and all I could think of was Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross and it, I was struck immediately that these were not of him, that this was of God and that these were the wounds of Christ. And yet they were just two little purple marks in the middle of his hands. Well, as soon as I, uh, as soon as I gathered myself up, I, I sat back up and my wife and Irving were praying for me. On Holy Thursday evening, Hul had started feeling unthinkable pain in his hands that lasted through the night. The marks first appeared on Friday in the early morning hours. Now, over the next couple of weeks, after observing these two little purple marks, I watched them grow bigger. I don't know if, if the holes or marks became bigger, but the dried blood around them made them appear this larger. And I watched the back of his hands swell up about an inch high until they could barely see his knuckles. And then the back of his hands split open and he had to wear bandages on him for the rest of his life because they bled occasionally and actually quite frequently. Later on, Irving would share with Deacon Saunders that he had actually been seeing Jesus and then receiving locutions from the Blessed Mother prior to receiving the wounds. Irving went to five doctors. Each one diagnosed it as lacerations that would heal in 10 to 14 days. But these were not temporary wounds they would be with Irving until the day he died. From 1993, the spring of 1993, they never healed until he died in uh, January of 2009. And they bled every Friday and on special feast days and on other occasions when, uh, like St. Francis of Assisi, uh, you know, they, they could bleed at any time, but they always did on Friday. And Irving explained to me that uh, the Blessed Mother told him he was he was going to suffer the passion, her son's passion, every night from midnight to 3 a.m. And that's what happened to him from that Easter in 1993 until the day he died. Every single night. It was uh, days that he was out of town praying over people at churches throughout the metro Detroit metropolitan area, throughout uh, central Michigan, and in the Upper Peninsula. There was times he traveled to South Dakota to the Fatima family apostolate out there when it was out there. He traveled to the actually uh, Fatima uh, 
in Europe. He traveled to Russia, but every night, no matter where he was, he had to be in his room before midnight because he knew within a few minutes of midnight he would begin to suffer the passion and he would not be out of it for a while. He would he would not be truly conscious. He would be suffering the passion. There were times that Irving questioned why it happened to him, especially early on. He was upset and confused about it. The wounds were a source of stress in his marriage, skepticism from priests and those in the community. But he was given constant comfort from the Blessed Mother that helped him accept it. But he had these these locutions from the Blessed Mother that comforted him, and the Blessed Mother said that she would guide him and help him through it. But she she kind of pushed him towards steering towards certain priests to find uh, someone that would mentor him through it. She assured him that she would surround him with people that loved him and would support him. And whenever he got down, on himself or about this charism because it was difficult for his life. It interfered with his marriage. It caused trouble between him and his wife. Not serious trouble, but confusion and and wonderment and and just thinking, how can this be? You know, those kind of things occurred. One could put yourself in the same place and wonder how that's going to change your life. Uh, he just. He dealt with it, he suffered a lot, and the Blessed Mother actually told him the sufferings that you, that you suffer of rejection, mistreatment by people because of what my son is doing through you. The Blessed Mother also had a request of Hul, to touch and heal her children. And almost immediately, there were those who were looking for his healing touch. That started almost immediately after he received the stigmata People started coming to him, and he did that whenever anyone wanted that to be done and whenever anyone requested it to be done. And in the beginning, people were all over him. He couldn't get any sleep. People were calling him and knocking on his door at home. Upon receiving permission from Bishop James Garland, Marquette's bishop at the time, a woman from the parish who was a friend of the Hools devoted a room in her home for his ministry, a bookstore, and religious goods. A prayer group formed with Hool, Deacon Saunders, and other parishioners that would meet weekly to support the ministry. And then once he got permission from Bishop Garland, he people would come. They came sometimes in busloads to this house on 10th Avenue South in Escanaba. They would line up out the door to come in and be touched. And he was willing to carry this cross and, and suffer even passion every night for the rest of his life and do God's will. In the course of their friendship, Deacon Saunders remembers seeing many miracles. And there are literally thousands of people that knew Irving or were touched by him or experienced some type of healing from God, whether it was physical or spiritual, that could talk about him. There were signs and wonders, miracles of people healed from cancer, uh, tumors disappearing. There were people that the greatest ones were those that converted back to the church and went to, went to confession and started receiving Jesus again, the bread of life. I know people that lived for years. Well, we talk about the physical miracles because we're physical people. Hey, we live here and when we see a miracle happen, uh, they, people flock to him for their prayers for 
But you know, once he started going into the churches, most of the prayers that he heard were from moms and dads that said, our children have abandoned the faith, or my husband doesn't go to church. And, uh, and Irving would tap them on the hand, and, and then he would uh, touch them on the head and ask Jesus to bless them. And then he would usually touch them on the shoulders and pray that they would receive the blessing that they asked for. And then he would take their hands in his hand and pray that uh, and pray that they would have their faith would be strengthened and that they so they could carry their own crosses. Because Irving knew that he couldn't do a thing about anybody's problems, but he firmly believed that God could and that Jesus loved everyone and wanted us to love everyone. It was like having the Bible put out in front of you and and watching it unfold in front of you. You know, the, the people reacted in many ways. They cried, they passed out on the floor, they went and got in line to go to confession. And that, that excited Irv the most when he heard about somebody that hadn't been in the confessional for 20 or 30 or 40 years, but went to confession after they came up with a prayer request and that he touched them with those wounds of Jesus. And then the people came back to practicing in the church. Herb was 100% a disciple of Jesus. And he knew we had to eat the body and blood of Christ. And he knew the only place to get it is in the Catholic Church. From a priest or a bishop or the Pope or any of those other guys. Not even a lowly deacon can do that. Only a priest. While the stigmata and stories of healings are awe-inspiring, Deacon Saunders deeply hopes people don't lose sight of what made Hull truly exceptional. I wouldn't want people to get caught up with the stigmata so much. Yeah, the stigmata was really something special to see, but the stigmata or some man having that charism is not what's going to get us to heaven. It's Jesus and our faith in him and the way we follow him and the way we love each other. In January 2009, Hul died from a heart attack. I saw him the night before he died. He was supposedly brain dead. He had suffered from uh, a colon cancer. And on a Monday, that uh, must have been shortly after Christmas, near the first of the year, brought him in for surgery and he had a heart attack and he died on the table. My wife and I, we held his hands and we kissed him on top of the head and told him what a good job he did for Jesus. The next morning, my friend called me and said Irving died. And uh, it was a sad day, but as it always is, but I, I know where Irving is. I'm not the church, I'm just one little guy, but I believe he's in heaven. Hool's former ministry support group came together to grieve, cry, and pray. And eventually, the group evolved into something else. We stayed together, his prayer group, about a dozen of us, and, and there were other people that were closer that were talking about Irving and, and so sad that he had left us, but knew that he was a saintly person, if not a saint. We, taught, we got together and we made up our own little prayer for people 
for the intercession of Irving Houle. And then uh, we saved a bunch of letters that people had written to Irving about about uh, conversions, spiritual healings, physical healings. I mean, a whole box, hundreds of them. And we had Irving had his uh, daughter and daughter-in-law uh, write the messages he received. He dictated them word for word that he received from the Blessed Mother. And we prayed that the church would recognize him. Out of the blue one day, the bishop called me in person. In November 2018, Bishop John Dorfler told Deacon Saunders that he was formally starting the cause for the canonization of Irving Houle in the Diocese of Marquette. They found a postulator, committees were formed, and committee members were named by the bishop. The next year, Bishop Dorfler went to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, where there was a unanimous vote that the cause should move forward. This is Bishop Dorfler. I first heard of him uh, before I became a bishop when I was a priest of the Diocese of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, uh, Francis, as he was you know, known by at, at that time, um, offered uh, various times of prayer where he would pray over people in healing surface, services. It was said that he had the gift of healing. So there are people from the Diocese of Green Bay who uh, attended some of these prayer services. So it was no surprise to him when he was approached by some faithful of the Diocese of Marquette to ask him to consider opening up a cause for his canonization. It's significant that uh, people of the diocese approached me to open a cause. And so that speaks to uh, the fact that he was a positive witness uh, to people about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So people saw in him a life of holiness that would be something for us to to hold up as an example, you know, for you know, for people for for people to follow. And, and so so that in itself is is quite significant. And so subsequent to that initial meeting. I gave the matter some thought and prayer, and I also consulted with some people who knew him uh, and also about the opportuneness of, of opening a cause, and then prayerfully decided that, yes, we should open a cause for his canonization. There were several things that stood out to Bishop Dorfler after his research and interviews with people who knew Houle that were qualities of a saint. Well, it, it has to do with his uh, his life of faith and holiness that that people that people saw in him. And so, so you know, if you think about what it really means to be a saint, in many ways, it, it, it's not always doing great things, but it's doing ordinary things in an extraordinary way, so to speak. Saint Therese, uh, in her little way, is a good example of this. You know, she, her her famous little way is just just doing ordinary things with extraordinary love. And 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 I I think one could look at the life of Irving Houle, and and in many ways it was it was an ordinary life, but something that that he lived with with extraordinary faith. In many ways. 
Irving Houle was just an ordinary guy. He was an athlete. He was a veteran. He was a husband and father. He was a fourth-degree Knight of Columbus. He was a diligent worker in the areas of retail and end in manufacturing. And he can serve as a model and example of holiness for the ordinary guy. And and isn't that something we need in the church? You know, to, to hold up examples of 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 ordinary people who've lived extraordinary lives of holiness. And and so how does one live out one's faith in in all aspects of, of one's life, from the family to the workplace. And, and Irving Houle uh, was a good example of that. Bishop Dorfler and the Association for the Cause of Canonization then hired Valentina Colurgioni, the postulator in Rome, for Houle's cause. The postulator is uh, an expert who simply helps uh, and guide uh, the actor during the process and helps to make known the servant of God and helps to spread uh, the devotion to the servant of God. And he also uh, offers a service not only for the single cows but also to all the church. After reading Irving's biography, she was sparked to accept the assignment. I was very inspired uh, by his prayer in with the family since he was very young and it uh, remembered me when I prayed with my mother during Lent. But also I, I was very moved by his virtue of uh, abandonment to God's will and his patience in offering his sufferings to, to Jesus and welcoming all people who went to, to visit him. And these are the, the things that touched me the most. But like others who knew him or have come to learn his story, what makes Hull's life stand out of the ordinary for Valentina is less the presence of the stigmata and more the presence of remarkable faith. And I've heard not only uh, on Irving's life, but about the life of many stigmatized uh, saints, that uh, many people went to visit them. And in this case, many people went to visit Irving, maybe because they were just curious about stigmata. But when they arrived and met him, they felt and so his profound union with God and the peace and the goodness uh, which um, was promenaded by his person. And this point is what really touched people and uh, caused their conversion. And this was, I think, the most important thing that touched people more than the stigmata. We have many, many people who live a very 
similar life we can say but when a person is very united with god in his or her heart it can be felt by people and this is why people uh, love and search for counseling and consolation from these people and what this is what ha happened with uh, Irving because it's not only the the sufferance or the presence of stigmata which um, render render his life so helpful for people but it was his profound union with God as Hull's case continues in pursuit of canonization, the many who know him see him as the saint needed for this time in history. And he had the same thing, problems that those of us have. Our marriages, our, our children who don't want to go to church or, or don't want to go to school or don't want to work. Our, our jobs are hard. Many people's jobs are hard. Uh, you know, it's hard to work for other people. Sometimes you get a tough boss and we're beat down so bad and we know life is, is tough. But you can get through it with Jesus. And that was Irving's message. You can get through anything with Jesus. You can live and die with Jesus and then you'll live forever. And that's, that's why God sent his son here. And I think that's why he sends us saints to keep reminding us Hey, you people who aren't listening, start paying attention. I love you. I don't judge you. I love you. Come to me. And Irvin did that constantly. We need him. I know we do. He was a normal guy who took time to consider God's plan for our lives, to know him, to love him, and to serve him, the basic catechism. I think we need a saint to teach us how to be good disciples. And, and I think that's why he put him here. Detroit Stories is a production of Detroit Catholic and the Communications Department of the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thinking about the probability of dying is something that none of us wants to face. No matter what we do, all of us will pass away one day. Preparing now is a great way to help our loved ones during their grieving process and ensure our final wishes are followed. Our caring friends at the Catholic Funeral and Cemetery Services can help you. Visit cfcsdetroit.org or call 734-285-2155.